go. John chapter 3, verse 31. So we finished John chapter 3 today. We have been in John 3 for almost two months. It's been uh, seven weeks uh, to full, see the full conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. Also, from a few weeks ago, the example of humility from the life of John the Baptist. And today, uh, John will close out this section with a strong affirmation of the supremacy of Christ. And so while it has taken us almost two months to um, complete this, and it's been powerful and freeing, it has been really um, significant, I want to remind you and I this morning that there is one who does not like what we have been declaring over the last seven weeks. And so I want to remind us of that this morning, that we have an enemy. So listen to these words. This is Peter, First Peter 5, 8. Be speaking to the church, saying, church, be sober-minded and watchful. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Our enemy is not passive. He is actually aggressive. He is active. So you and I must be watchful and aware of the devourer. So that's from Peter. Paul gives us this perspective in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Notice where we are to place our lives. Be strong, not in our wisdom, not in our ways. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It is His might, His power, His resources are what we need. And then he says, put on the whole armor of God for this reason, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the key is the strength of Christ um, no, again, not our willpower, but it is Him. Now, the enemy is a thief. We know from John 10, 10, Jesus said these words, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life and to give life abundantly. We know from another place, from the teaching of Jesus in the parable of the sower, that the enemy is a thief, and he does this, and he's aiming at belief. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 8, verse 12. He's talking about the parable of the sower where they sow the seed among the path. The ones sown along the path are those who have heard the gospel. The seed has been put there. But the devil comes, and listen to what the devil does. The devil comes, and he takes away the word of God from their hearts for this reason, so that they will not believe and be saved. So, as we have been proclaiming that you must be born again, and we have, we have looked at, this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. We have seen this incredible example from John the Baptist of he must increase, I have to decrease. John's going to close this time to give us a picture of the supremacy and the glory of Jesus and why Jesus is so important in our lives. And this, this talk this morning is really, really significant in its affirmation as to why Jesus should be so important to us in our lives. Up until this point in time, in John chapter 3, he has written the word believe 14 times. We have 18 chapters to go. He will write the word believe 70 more times in this gospel. It is the theme of this gospel. Every sentence, every word, every aspect of this was written so that people would come to believe. And so I think it makes perfect sense that as we proclaim this, the enemy is against that and he is desiring to steal away 
the truth of God that could center and, and be settled inside of our hearts. And so for John and for us today and for everybody, everything comes down to this reality. Do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the only one who can rescue us from our separation from God and to give us everlasting life? And I'll say this, we must make sure that we get this straight. For if we do not have this straight, then we will not have the moving forward right in our understanding of God's purpose for us. Now, before we read the text, um, there, um, we're about to read. There are two things that, that I um, want to put forth um, to us this morning, and, and it's this. is We're not for sure who's speaking at the end from verse 31 to verse 36. We have two options. It's either John the Baptist is continuing to speak, and this is an affirmation from John the Baptist, or John the Baptist is finished, and John the Apostle is writing now, um, giving some insight at the end of this section on, on what it means to have salvation and be born again and what that looks like uh, before we transition to look at the, uh, the woman. If you were to put me, uh, the Samaritan woman, if you were to put me in the corner this morning and say, who wrote it, who said this, I, I would lean more toward, toward um, the Apostle John. This is not John the Baptist. I would lean more toward the Apostle writing this uh, for two reasons. One reason simply is this, is the depth of understanding um, that is that we will see this morning. Um, it's it's obviously possible John the Baptist was an incredible man could have understood this, but it seems to be very very deep in its understanding of Christ. It's also very very trinitarian in nature, and so the Apostle John, who had walked with the Lord for a long time, would have had a deeper understanding of that. And so I would lean that way. It doesn't matter if it's John the Baptist or if it's the writer. It's inspired scripture, but. But it's just interesting. The most reliable manuscripts that we have do not have this section in quotations. The quotations ended at verse 30. And so that's why um, I lean that way. And that bell affirmed my perspective, I guess. All right. All right. Let's look at the text, verse 31 of John chapter 3. And we'll read through verse 36. And then we'll um, begin to dissect that and look at it. So he who comes from above is above all he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way he who comes from heaven is above all he bears witness to what he has seen and heard yet no one receives his testimony whoever receives his testimony sets his seal or his confidence to this that god is true for he who whom god has sent utters the words of god For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to walk through this and we'll begin with verse 31. And I I want us to see the affirmations that the writer is making about the supremacy of Christ, and that will be our theme today. And John, is, John the writer is wanting us to understand, coming out of this section of this great man, John the Baptist, that John the Baptist and Jesus are not equal to one another. Jesus is far, far superior than John the Baptist. 
Jesus made John the Baptist. Jesus entrusted John the Baptist with this ministry. John didn't earn it. It was given to him and granted to him. And so this contrasting aspect, he's wanting us to not, to to make sure that we're not following people of earth, but we're following Jesus. And we're not getting caught up in making a man and somebody of the earth the most important person in our life. And while Jesus was born and was incarnated and he had flesh. He is, regardless of that, he is the eternal son of God, the preexistent one, the, the one who's going to last forever, the one who does not change. And so, so we must see that there is a difference between that and you will see this overall. So let's look at verse 31. Let's read it one more time. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. One of the most important things that must be at the forefront of our faith, if we know Him, is to be reminded that every aspect of our lives must be connected to Jesus Christ. That is where everything must be front and center. That is where we must stand, is in the person of Jesus. Every bit of life, if we're ever going to know anything about life, it is connected to Jesus. This theme of He comes from above goes all through the Gospel of John. Let me just share, in John 3, already in chapter 3, he's already shared, shared something like this in verse 13. This is Jesus speaking. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So there's an affirmation already that Jesus has come from heaven. We see this one here in John three thirty-one. Later in John chapter 6, Jesus speaking again about the bread of life says these words, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus once again is affirming, I'm not of this earth, I'm not of this world, I have come from heaven. That is the origin of who I am. Actually, he didn't have an origin, by the way. Let me, let me clarify that. That's, he didn't have a beginning, but his coming here was from there. That's where he came um, to the earth. And then later in John eight twenty three, he said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. And so, so the writer comes to this section at the end of John the Baptist, where John the Baptist says, He must increase, I have to decrease. And he makes this great affirmation. Here's the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist had his origin here of earth. John the Baptist is of earth. Jesus is not of earth. His origin is is that he is God divine. He is the eternal one. And he came from heaven here on earth, and he took on flesh to do this. We remember John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So watch. Our faith then, Christianity, is different than any other faith on the planet today. Any other religion, any other philosophy, any other proclamation. Our faith does not come from the mind of man, therefore making it have the origin of the earth. Our faith comes from the life of Jesus, therefore making it origin of God himself. It is of heaven and it is divine. Now notice what he says here. He who comes from above. So if Jesus comes from above to the earth, he's the one who's the eternal one. He has come from heaven here to the earth. Therefore, it makes him unique among everybody. Therefore, he is above all. 
Nobody rises above Him. He has come from heaven to the earth as the Messiah, the Son of God, to die for us. And so therefore, He is above all. Let me remind us of what the New Testament affirms. He is greater than all of the prophets. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. He is greater than the angels. Hebrews 1, 4 through 14. As a matter of fact, let me just say this. Beware of anything within Christianity that makes so much of angels that Jesus is diminished. Angels would not be around if they had not been created by Jesus himself. They are just creatures, glorious creatures, purposeful creatures, but they are creatures. They are not the creator. He is, so he's greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels. He is also, according to Paul in Romans chapter 9, he is the sovereign God who is above all. Listen to Romans 9, 5. To them, speaking of the Jewish people, belong the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. And then Paul writes these words, who is, speaking of Jesus, Jesus is, he says, who is God over all? He's over all. He's the sovereign God. He's the highest one. And then Paul later uh, writing to the church at Ephesus, affirms that Jesus is the high and exalted Lord of all and that He is in all. He's the one who's the point of everything. So listen to Ephesians 1.20. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. And listen to these affirmations of who Jesus is. And seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then in 21, He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Jesus has the highest name in the past. He's got the highest name today. He will have the highest name in the future. And he put all things, everything, including the coronavirus, under the feet of Jesus. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And the point of this we must therefore because he comes from above therefore he is above all he is not of this earth his beginning point did not start at conception in nazareth jesus's beginning did not take place in a stall in bethlehem he is the eternal god who has never have a beginning and he will never have an end he is the sovereign god so we attach every bit of our lives to Him. Every aspect. Family life. Work life. We, everything that we do, our worship, our study of the Word is connected to Him. Now, now notice what John, the writer, says next. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. And because they belong to the earth, all that they can do is they can speak in an earthly way. Now all around us, have y'all watched TV lately? What's news lately? All you hear is earth stuff. And you know what happens when all you hear is earth stuff? Panic sets in. Uncertainty sets in. What are we going to do? And so, so we have to rise above that as God's people. And we have to be reminded that our God doesn't speak earth stuff. He speaks what's divine and what's heavenly and what gives life. And so John is wanting us to see this. The difference between the Baptist and Jesus is John the Baptist 
He can speak heaven's words, but they were given to him. Jesus can speak heaven's words because he is the point of it all, and he has the sovereign authority about that. But the voices in our culture, they're going to call us to ground our lives connected to the things of this earth, and we will never find life there. Now, I want you to think about this with me as well. The Old Testament has incredible men and women who loved God deeply, and they were they were living here on the earth. They knew that the earth wasn't it, that there was something in their heart that they longed for something greater than the earth. And they lived with the eyes not on a kingdom of the earth, but they lived with an eye on the kingdom of heaven. And that was their, their passion. And because of that, God makes great affirmation about the way they live their life and their worldview. Listen to Hebrews eleven sixteen. As it is, these people, men and women who loved God, lived here on the earth, they sought and they desired a better country, not one here of the earth. That is, the writer says, a heavenly one. And because that was their passion, I am not to ground my life here in the culture and get caught up in in all of this. They desired a greater heavenly kingdom and city. Therefore, God is not ashamed, the writer says, to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. And so, again, the writer is wanting us to see there is a difference between John the Baptist and Jesus. They are not equal. John is of heaven. John is of earth. Jesus is of heaven. We are of earth. Jesus is of heaven. And that must settle in us, folks. That must settle in us. So, so if the bookstore is open tomorrow, the Christian bookstore, if you can order Christian books from Amazon that written by people that love God, etc., etc., those books, those people are not Jesus. They are of earth. And so our focus is, do we learn from others? Absolutely. Let's learn from others who deeply love God. But let's never lose sight that this is the only book that matters. No book's going to be in heaven but the eternal word of God. That's it. It's not going to be there. So we, we must keep perspective and find revelation of who Christ is in the Scripture. Now, we know that Jesus did not speak in an earthly way, and here's why we know this. Everywhere he went, when he taught, when he healed, what did people do? They marveled, and what did they do? They said things like this. Nobody has ever taught like this. When he cast a demon out, they said this. Nobody in Israel has ever had this kind of authority. So everywhere Jesus went, and he manifested the reality of who he was, he was God present in the midst of people. People made this great affirmation. This guy's not of earth. He is not of earth. He doesn't teach. He doesn't live. He doesn't speak. He doesn't heal like earth people. This is God. And there was this great affirmation all around. Here's just one of them. Luke 23, 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. That was after the crucifixion. And then even before that, Luke 13, 17. And he said these things, and as all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, 39 times in John's gospel, in one form or another, this affirmation is made, we are of the earth, he is of heaven. We are of the earth, he is of heaven. And and this contrast is critically important 
to the, to the Apostle John in making sure that we understand this about Jesus. The nature of Jesus, though God in a body of a man, has a nature superior to anyone else. When he, when he became a baby and he grew up and he became a man, he was never less God because he had a body. He was fully God in a body. He was fully God before he had a body. We will see at the end today in Revelation chapter 5, John will have this vision of heaven and he will see a lamb standing there who appears to have been slain. And I believe this, that he will have a body for all of eternity. And when we get to heaven, guess what we will get to see? We will see the scars that bear the mark that rescued us from our sins. So he was never less God because he didn't sin. And he was perfect in who he was. And so he who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven, because he comes from heaven, therefore he is above all. Now let me make a statement here before we move on to point two. Based on John 3.30, the last words we have in this text from John the Baptist where he says, he must increase, I've got to become smaller is an indication that you and I are to always fade away in light of the glory of Jesus. That means this, every preacher, every counselor, every children's minister, every musician, every drummer, guitarist, women's leader, men's leader, we fade away in light of the glory of who Christ is. If the church does not adopt this mentality and, and adopt this biblical reality, listen to what happens. When Christ is made less in a person's life or less in a church's life, this is what naturally happens. We exalt man more. It just is inevitable. If we're going to make less of Jesus, then you make more of the pastor or you make more of the life group leader, whoever the case is. But if our mindset is, no, Jesus alone gets glory, man doesn't get glory, he does. When we make much of him, then man becomes less. And that's the beauty of John the Baptist. Is John's, if you remember, John's disciples came to him and said, hey, that guy Jesus and his disciples, they're baptizing more people. More people are going to him, and, and, and fewer people are coming to us. And they were jealous for John. And John said, uh-uh, we're not worried about that. I was able to do what I've been able to do because it's, it's been given to me from heaven. And so I've got to decrease, and he's got to increase. And so John says, I, I, I am the best man at the wedding, and, and, and I'm getting to hear the bridegroom's voice, and I rejoice in that reality. And so John got it, that he was of the earth and that Jesus was greater. Do you and I get it, that Jesus is the greater one? He's greater than John MacArthur. He's greater than John Piper. He's greater than Billy Graham, Jesus is. He's greater than Chuck Swindoll. He's greater than Matt Chandler. He's greater than David Platt. He is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And so he guides us, he guides us, and he must be our passion. By the way, that means he's greater than me, which you knew that anyway, right? <laughs> he gets the glory. He gets the glory. Look at the first part of verse 32. Let's move on to the second point, and the points will move a little faster now. 31 is critical. We are of the earth, he is of heaven. First part of 32. And he, speaking of Jesus, 
bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Now, this is incredibly important, church. So, before anything ever was, there was no creation, there was no matter, there were no galaxies, there was no earth, there was no water. Before anything was, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit existed. Three in one. Where were they? Well, they weren't anywhere because there wasn't anywhere. They existed. Just eternal God, powerful God. Before anything ever was, you had God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, they were in community with one another, in relationship with one another as the Godhead, which meant they talked. They experienced the reality of what it was to be one God. But then the world was created. And then man was created. And all of this stuff began to happen. And all the way through everything before Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem and began to grow up. Listen to this. Listen to what the writer is saying. There is one who is the most reliable eyewitness and earwitness of, of everything in the history of the world. And that person is not Paul. It's not John. It is not Matthew the greatest eyewitness and earwitness of the reality of the kingdom of God in the history of the world is Jesus Christ himself. And that's what he's making the affirmation here. No one has seen or heard the things of heaven like Jesus. And guess what? He brought that revelation here when he was in a body and he told us this is what God's like. You want to know what the Father's like? He's a father who sits on the porch when his son went away and squandered his life and realized that it was better at the father's house and the son comes back and the father runs down the road and hugs and kisses and embraces the son and he throws a party because his son that was lost has now been found. We would not know that story of the glorious heart of the heavenly father if Jesus hadn't come here and proclaimed to you and I, this is what God's like. This is what I'm like. This is what the Holy Spirit is like so jesus becomes for us the most trustworthy eyewitness of who god is for us that's why the scripture is so important for us and because his eye is on the sparrow it means that his eye is on our lives and he knows what we need he he is aware of things he is sovereign and he has the authority to reveal anything that he wants to reveal to us And the narrow road is narrow. You know why the narrow road is narrow? Because it's narrow and very few people find it and it's sparsely populated. And you see, Jesus has this great standalone quality about his nature is that he alone has the power and authority to reveal to you and I who God is and what the kingdom of God is like. He did not come to reveal what he hoped to be true in the future. He didn't come saying, well, I'm kind of suggesting this may be the way it is. He came to say this. No, this is the way it is. God loves you sinners who walk in darkness and love darkness rather than light. He came. He came to die to bear that reality so that you and I could experience him. And so Jesus comes as the one who's the most trustworthy eyewitness and earwitness of the things of God because he was what? Again, he was not of the earth. He was of heaven and he's he as god he knows what the father has to say he knows what the spirit has to say and he knows what he has to say and who they are 
And so he becomes the most significant one because he has the most significant firsthand experience of anyone. Now let me just touch on something here for a moment. This means that he knows all things. He knows all things. Because he is of heaven and because he bears witness from a firsthand experience, he knows all things. Nothing is limited in his knowledge. He needs information from no one. He doesn't seek it out. He doesn't lack it. We can't tell him something that he doesn't already know. We cannot add to his knowledge. And so watch out in the church today when it's hinted at or it is spoken of that Jesus does not know things. He does know things. Now somebody may say, well, what about that time when they said, when's all this going to take place? And he said, he said, I don't know. Um, the hour and the time, that's reserved for the Father. Well, I think in that moment, that was an absolute true statement because Jesus only speaks truth. But that was pre the cross. That was pre the burial, and that was pre the resurrection, and that was pre his ascension, and pre his sitting down at the right hand of his Father. Jesus knows when he's coming back, and it's going to be at a moment's notice. And so let's don't pretend as if he is... He is up there today going, what am I going to do about this virus? And he's just trying to figure out what to do. Our God is absolutely sovereign. His knowledge is perfect. Therefore, he is absolutely trustworthy because of this. He is the most trustworthy eyewitness and earwitness in the world. He knows all things that can be known. The Baptist had a testimony that was given to him. Jesus had a testimony already when he came here. He knows what he knows is God, and it is a complete knowledge, and we can trust in that reality. Look at the last part of verse 32 before we move on to 33. Here's the great tragedy, though, in our world, is that people reject the testimony of Jesus. Here's the one who's seen and heard everything that you and I would long to want to know, and he's come to reveal it. And what, the, what has the world responded? The world has said, not interested in you, not interested in your work on the cross, not interested in what you have to say. Uh, I, I am not going to follow it. Now, we, now it says there, yet no one receives this testimony, but in verse 33 we see that people do receive his testimony. John is making a point saying that for the most part people rejected the testimony about who Jesus is is and what was it that they didn't receive what was it that they rejected um, about jesus it was his teaching his doctrine the truth to which he bore witness as having seen and heard as a matter of fact uh, if you remember john chapter 1 verse 11 it says this he came to his own and his own people did what they didn't receive him there was one group of people living on the planet a couple thousand years ago who had thousands of years of time to be ready for the coming of Jesus. And there he is right in front of them. And they'd been waiting and they'd been studying. And he's right in front of them. And what did they do? They rejected him. What did they want? They wanted somebody to rescue them from Rome, a government, instead of someone who would come from heaven to rescue them from their sin. And this is another proof that we are of the earth. We want physical rescue rather than a spiritual rescue. Now, I, I've got something in my bag here this morning. 
So y'all hang with me here. Let me talk about greatness. That's greatness right there. Man, M&M's. Usually in our country, these things are hot commodities. People like this. These are flying off the shelves. But we are so messed up that this has become our treasure. And this. Now I want you to just think about this for a moment. How broken our culture is. How broken Europe is. That this has become the deepest longing in the hearts of people over the last three days. And if you've gotten caught up in it and you're a believer, I, want to rem- I just want to say this to you. Stop it. We are to be different. We are not to be like the world. I like toilet paper, but we can't live without it. I like this. We can't live without it. Now, this is another story, potentially, (laughs) but anyway. But folks, listen to me. See, the great tragedy is stuff like this becomes the treasure and not Jesus. And it's just a simple recognition of the reality that in our world today, we are so confused about what truly matters. And the world rejects this glorious, beautiful testimony about who Jesus is. And so our faith must rest in Christ alone. So we've got to come to a firm conclusion. Well, what conclusion do we need to come to? Look at verse 33. We've got to come to the conclusion that God is truth. God alone is true. So look at 33. We come to this firm conclusion, God is true. Whoever receives his testimony, the testimony of Jesus, they set his seal to this, what? That God is truth. So this means this, when we accept the testimony of Jesus, we are accepting the teaching of Jesus, the revelation of who Jesus is. We believe in the doctrine of Christ and we yield to its influence and the life that is found in who He is and in the Word. And the reason that you and I should put our faith and trust in Jesus is that we've come to a firm conclusion and a firm reality of this based on who Jesus is, based on the apostolic eyewitness and the things that they wrote down because they saw these things and they heard these things. This is what is critically important for us. We know this, that God is true and Jesus therefore spoke the very words of God and so we John says you set your seal to this now we don't do this today in time but way back then you did this you marked something with a seal that said this this is binding this is where I'm staying this is what I'm stuck this is my passion is to affirm something is absolutely true. And so John says, whoever has received the testimony about who Jesus is, that he has come from above, he is not of the earth, they stake their life on this reality that God alone is true. The culture is not true. God is the one who is true. So Jesus, therefore, is who he claimed to be. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is sent from heaven to redeem us from our sins and by setting our seal to this it means that we fix our mind and our heart that Jesus is the promised redeemer and he is the one who is to get supremacy 
in every single matter. And even if all others forsake him, you and I would be faithful to follow him. So look what it says, 33. Whoever receives this testimony, they set their seal to this, that God is true. See, in this context, this means an unwavering commitment and conviction that Jesus is the truth and that God is, what God has spoken is true and we rest our lives on it. Now, listen to this for a moment, please. Watch out for those out there today, and they are out there today. There are wolves in the church trying to scatter the sheep. Watch out for those who downplay the truth of the Word of God and try to manipulate it to fit a man-centered mindset and philosophy. Don't listen to them. Don't listen. See, Jesus, if God is true, and God affirms the glory of who Jesus is, then we must affirm and come to the firm conclusion and set our seal, set our lives on this reality that Jesus is the one that the Father affirms in all ways. He is who he claimed to be and was sent by the Father from heaven here. So let me, let me make a point here and we'll move on to point five this morning. Since God is true, John the Apostle writes here, We set our seal, we set our testimony, we banked our lives on this reality. God alone is true. So if God alone is true, someone can never say words like this, and you will hear this today out there in church land. Well, I'm into God, but I'm not into Jesus. If someone says that, the Apostle John in his first letter says this, well, you make God that you're saying you affirm, you're making him out to be a liar. And here's why you're making out to be a liar is if you're affirming him and not affirming Jesus, you're making him to be a liar because he affirms Jesus. So listen to these words. This is 1 John five ten. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony of God, of Christ in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. And listen to this. Because for this reason, because he has not believed in the testimony that God the Father has borne concerning his Son. So you'll hear this today. Out there, you'll meet people. You may share your faith. And you'll hear people say this. Well, yeah, I'm into God, but not really into the Jesus stuff. Well, you you can't do that. You can't separate the Trinity that way. It is three and one. They are one. You cannot do that. And so God the Father, you make him to be a liar because what did the Father do? He affirmed Jesus all the time. At his baptism, Spirit came down. And what did the Father say? This is my son. Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Peter speaking. Glory of God comes down in a bright light. The Father speaks. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then he adds something. He says, listen to him. So the Father affirms Jesus. And so if we're not going to affirm Jesus, and there are church, listen to me, there are denominations out there that downplay Jesus and, up and, and emphasize the Spirit over Jesus and emphasize the Father. over. And so we, we don't play these games pitting the Trinity against one another. We don't do that. They are God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. And their great affirmation is this, is we've got to come to this great conclusion. 
And so if the Father of that Jesus is who He is, if the Father is true, then every single thing that the Father has ever said about Jesus is what? It's true. Absolutely true. All right, let's look at point five. 30, verse 34. For He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. Now, you may know this, you may not know this. All of these verse 32, verse 33, verse 34. That was not in the original Greek manuscripts. This was put together later on. It's very helpful for us to know where to go and read things. But in some ways, um, the first part of 34 ought to be kind of connected back with 33 because it's, it's, it's making this affirmation. Um, if you look back, if you look at uh, 33 there, that God is true. And then he says, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. And, and so I want to talk just for a moment about this reality that is, that is here that is, I think is really important for us to see. This is why the Scripture is so important. So if Jesus is the eternal one who never had a beginning, He will never have an end. He is the supreme eyewitness and ear witness of the things of God. He came here. He, he brought this reality and this revelation here to the earth. He proclaimed this reality of who the Father is, who He is, who the Spirit is. And He did this. He did so when He did it. Because He is of heaven, He is not of earth. When Jesus spoke, He was speaking the very words of God. Not less than God, not suggestions. But John says here, He whom God has sent, who heard and saw, when He speaks... He utters the very words of God. That's why a church cannot ever downplay the written text of the Scripture. Now, we're going to talk about a sovereign authority here in a moment that is connected with this. But He came to utter the very words of God. They give life, they give hope, they give mercy, grace, forgiveness, restoration. And in Him we find the very heart of God unfold its display And in his words, we see that as well. Now, one other thing that's important. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, I want to make sure that we understand this. Does that mean that we get the Spirit without measure? Or is this a reference to Jesus? Well, I think in the context here, who's the reference, us or Jesus? Jesus. So I think the point here is that when Jesus came here in the Incarnation, the Holy Spirit, we know this, that is baptism, descended, not, the Holy Spirit's not a dove, by the way. If you have a dove at your house and it represents the Holy Spirit, he's not a dove. It's kind of, the picture was, as a dove comes and lands on your shoulder, that's what the Spirit did. The Spirit came down and landed on Jesus. So Jesus' life, while he was here, was enveloped in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus did not have power as the Son of God, for He did. Listen, listen to these verses. Let me just give you some. So when Jesus was here, the power of the Spirit was on Him. Isaiah eleven two, For the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I will put my Spirit upon Him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. One day Jesus was in a synagogue and the scroll was opened. And he read this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
Luke 4.18, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You remember what John the Baptist said in John 1.32? And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Do you see the Trinitarian language here? Father, Son, Spirit, all God, all completely God, one. So when Jesus was here, one of the glorious things about Jesus is that the powerful, mighty, glorious, all-sufficient Spirit of God rested on the person of Jesus. That's why when he spoke, that's why when he healed, the people just marveled that he wasn't like the scribes. He wasn't of earth. They just affirmed this. This guy is of heaven. This is heaven stuff. We've never seen and we've never heard anything like that. And there's two clear implications here. Only Jesus, therefore, can speak the very words of God. I don't have the very words of God. I speak the words that have come to us, but in and of myself, I've got to be real careful, and you need to be real careful, to never say words like this. Well, I have a word from the Lord. Be really careful when you say that. Be really, really careful when we say that because only Jesus has the words, and we've been entrusted to do what? To tell His words. That's where the power comes. You, don't want, to, you want to know where the power of preaching comes? It's not in illustrations. It's not in humor. The power of preaching comes when we rest in and, and, and are strongly connected with the proclamation of what has already come to us. That's it. That's where the power comes. And Je- Jesus speaks the very words of God. We are not to water down. If, if somebody lives in a church or, or don't live in a church, but if you go to a church and, uh, and it's just watered down words of God, that person will never mature. Go to a church that's going to proclaim the whole counsel of God and that life will mature as it surrenders to the teaching. So that's one implication with point five, the fullness of the Spirit without measure. He utters the words of God. Only Jesus speaks that. And secondly, through Jesus, because, because of who He is and because of what He did, yes, we do receive the fullness of the Spirit. God lives inside of us. Is that not amazing? God in in the Holy Spirit, lives in those who have come to salvation. Let's look at point six, verse 35. I want to talk about the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. So verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Look at 35 again. The Father, what does He do with the Son? He loves the Son, and what did He do? He trusts the Son, so He gave all things into the Son's hands. So I I referenced these earlier. Matthew 3, 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17, 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You listen to Him. God, the Father's love, rests intimately and most strongly in the Son, and He has given all things into His hand. Now watch this. So we've got this thing that's been put together with f- fake leather. You may have real leather, and, and it's 
paper and it's got red ink and it's got black ink and it's got numbers and it's got maps and it's got all this stuff and it has and it has you know it has come to us and and we have to we have to ask this question because um here in 2020 we've got 2000 years of man touching manuscripts how can we trust what's come to us as reliable and that's one of the arguments people make to diminish the scripture well let me tell you why we can trust this because Jesus is an eyewitness and earwitness of the things of heaven and he brought it here all things have been given into his hand as a sovereign authority if the only way we are ever going to know who he is and our God is sovereign and he knows all things do you not think he has enough power to get the word of God to us in the year 2020 exactly the way he wants us to have it absolutely if we can't trust this then let's go home and let's live fearful today and search all over Collin County for toilet paper let's spend our day doing that but if this is true because God is true because the testimony of Jesus is true then let's just breathe and know that nothing stops our God he's sovereign remember the last words Jesus said right before he ascended all authority in heaven and earth has been what? Given to me. And so therefore, here's what I'm telling you. You go where people are panicking about toilet paper and share with them that there's another tree that didn't get paper made out of it and the Son of God hung on it and He's the hope of your life. And He loves you. And He's got a plan for you. So the sovereign authority of Jesus is clear. All right, lastly... Look at verse 36. So in light of all of this, can y'all hear it? Listen. There's an organ going 2,000 years ago, just as I am is being played, and, and there's an invitation that's being given here by John. He's explained the way of salvation. And now he says, listen, your eternal destiny rests on whether or not you believe in who Jesus is or you don't believe. So look at 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not hopes to have, has. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Both of these in 2020, these options are present realities that extend all the way into eternity. Right now, each of us in this room either has eternal life that's going to end up in heaven or is going to have has eternal life that will end up separated from God in hell. And by the way, hell is a real place. It's a real place. Jesus spoke of it. Jesus actually spoke more of hell than he spoke of heaven. And if he's all true and he's the one who heard and saw things so that when he speaks these words, they are true. Whatever state someone is in when they die, that continues on for forever you don't get to go on the other side and go uh i want to do can i can i have a do-over no you don't get a do-over the choice that we made here is the choice that we have to live with jesus said it this way in matthew 25 46 and these will go away into eternal punishment 
but the righteous into eternal life. There is not a third option. There is not a fourth option. There is not a 28th option. There is one option if you want to get to heaven, and it's Jesus. And I find this, personally, incredibly freeing that the hope of my eternal destination and salvation and security is not grounded in me because it would fumble out of my hands. But it rests in the one who is eternal and who came and who died. And John 10 says this. Did you notice this a couple weeks ago? In John 10, we are placed in the Father's hands and we are also placed in whose hands? Jesus' hands. We are doubly secure in the hand of God. And if that's not secure enough, twice in the New Testament it says this, that those who believe in Jesus have given, been given the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our what? Our inheritance. We are sealed and secure in Him. So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever, notice he uses some different language here. It's not a believe word. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. Does that mean that we have to work our salvation? No, it has nothing to do with that. I think there are three implications as to why John writes this word. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Let me just give them briefly to you. To not believe in Him who was sent to redeem us is to disobey the offer of, offer of life from God Himself. So it's disobedience to reject the revelation of Christ. So that's why he says, whoever doesn't obey the Son shall not see life. I think a second reason is this. Genuine faith is always evidenced over time by what? Obedience. By walking in the truth of God. And I think the third implication as to whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life is this. Is there's a lot of false faith out there that claims faith. But it denies that faith by this. By a life of disobedience. So there's a lot of false faith that claims things, but it denies it by disobedience. And John just says, someone who rejects this, the wrath of God remains on them. This word remains means that there's no escaping this reality for those who don't believe. You see, let me tell you something about God's wrath. God's wrath is His Settled, holy hatred of sin. And somebody may say, well, why is he so angry about sin? Because he's holy and righteous. And it mocks the glory of his nature and the glory of who he is. But listen, he's not just angry. You know what he is? He's loving. This symbol here is the symbol of love. Not the sim- it's a symbol of hatred of sin. Yes. But it is, it is far more a symbol of great love of God that He made a way to bridge the gap that you and I could, could never cross over. But Jesus made the way so that you and I could have everlasting life by faith in Him. And so these words that we've looked at this morning is how John the Apostle ends this picture of here's what it looks like to have salvation and to walk in a relationship with Christ. Let's pray together. It's been crazy to see this reality. And I, I, um, 
that this has gotten so much worth. I'm going to read you what has worth. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on a throne, a scroll, written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, which, by the way, in Revelation is a reference to the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. It's a title deed to the earth. And Jesus grabs it from the Father. And when he had taken the scroll, heaven got pretty excited about this. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb standing, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of God's people. And they began to sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom. Listen to this. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. A world that values this needs people like you and I who see that we are a kingdom and priests to proclaim the glory of Jesus. So let's go this week and let's be that. And we hope to see you back next week. God bless you, church.